G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Uh, just about every parenting book on the shelf, I've noticed, includes a little passage that runs something like this. This one is from Ed Welch, um, Christian psychologist, and he puts it like this. He says, how, I wonder, does cruel speech affect children? Now, he says, I know that children are immensely resilient and I'm not suggesting that one word will scar a child for life, but the Bible indicates that reckless words pierce like a sword. The Bible never minimises the effect of sinful words. It exposes them as firebrands that leave wounds that can go to the deepest parts of our being. They stand in stark contrast to the words of compassion and healing that the Lord offers to such victims. I've seen children, he says, who have been crushed by the words of another. I've watched as some of them gradually become more reticent and withdrawn. They looked as if they were scared, always defensive and hypervigilant, as if they were in battle. Friends, uh, we begin today with a simple observation that words really matter. Words really matter. Welch made the reference there, didn't he, to some ancient proverbs from the Old Testament. Uh, Let me read a couple of them to you. I guess I'm making the point that it, it seems that words have been a very powerful force, have proved a very powerful force in our lives for a very long time down human history. The ancients understood it. They understood it well. And I suspect, if I can share this with you, I suspect our sensitivity to words is a deliberate design feature from the hand of our Creator. But you, you can make the, your judgment on that as, as the sermon rolls on. Whatever the case, the, the ancients felt the weight of even the tiniest words, didn't they? From Proverbs 12, verse 18. I think this is the proverb he was talking about. Reckless words pierce like a sword but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Well, Proverbs 13, verse 3, He who guards his lips guards his life, but he who speaks rashly will come to ruin. Have a look at this one, Proverbs 16, verse 24, Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Words matter. Uh, they matter to children, obviously. They matter very much to teenagers, if you remember your time back in the schoolyard. Words matter to adults, don't they, still, if we're honest with ourselves? Uh, can you perhaps call to mind examples from your own life, um, whether good or bad, actually, where words have just exerted this dramatic, you know, disproportionately large effect over your life? Uh, perhaps over your direction in life and the decisions that you made, perhaps over your sense of who you are and what you're worth or how much you'll ever amount to or what you could hope to become as a person. But of course, the, the picture isn't all bleak because what did it say there in the Proverbs 16? Sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Because it's, it's also with words, isn't it, that we mend what is broken 
when things go awry in life between us. We repair what has come apart, what has split up and busted up. Words, have you had this experience? Words help to lift us toward the person that we'll hope we one day become. Isn't that why on the internet you see so many of those little quotable quote word memes that people then frame and print and hang on their wall and whatnot? Words like, I am with you, can mean so much. Words like, you have got what it takes. I love you. I believe in you. You are a special person to me. Words like, I'm sorry. I forgive you. I knew I could count on you. Thanks for being there for me. There's no one in the world quite like you. I won't let you down. Uh, and of course, that, that very life-changing uh, or <laughs> colossal phrase, I do. Uh, moving towards our theme for today, would you please recall to mind a scene from the life of Jesus? It's one of those ones that I mention pretty regularly. I, I, th- I think you'll be able to recall it to mind. Uh, do you remember the moment in John chapter 6? And I always refer to it as the, the great the day of the great PR disaster in Jesus' life. Do you remember that one in John chapter 6? It's a PR disaster. It's not that Jesus did anything wrong. You see, the crowds had been listening to Jesus' words uh, there at that point in his ministry and for a variety of reasons, they decided that those were not words that they wanted in their lives. Thanks very much. His words proved too much tragically in their case, Uh, they made up their mind and so they voted with their feet. So, just a couple of verses from John 6, John 6 verse 63, Jesus is speaking and one of the things he says is, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. But tragically, if just a few verses later, verse 66, uh, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer wanted to follow him. But this is where I want us to focus. Verse 67, you don't want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the 12 disciples. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Um, Today, friends, I'm hoping that we'll rediscover that our very Bibles contain a word for us that gives life, that nourishes your life, that changes your life uh, for, for anyone who is willing to hear it. Today, as we continue our little series in the Doctrine of Scripture, last week, this week and next week, um, I put it to us that the heart of God's Word to humankind, His life-giving, His life-nurturing uh, Scriptures is none other, the heart is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Word that we must hear and we must heed together. He is where our healing is to be found. He is where our hope is to be found as well as our help for life on this earth. Let's pray together as we come to a few different passages uh, to put this together, this doctrine of Scripture. Let's pray. Yes, our Father God in heaven, we desire this morning to make progress 
in that most basic human activity of hearing the voice of our God. So would you please enable us to do that with clarity and with understanding? Father, we live in a culture that in so many ways is obsessed with words. We live lives surrounded by chatter and by noise. And we live in a culture equally obsessed with self-improvement in one way or another, becoming our better selves. But so very often, without any real clarity on where that improvement is going to come from, too often you are not part of that vision for betterment. So, Lord, we look to you this morning, not just for advice or for quotable, frameable quotes, but more than that, even for transformation toward the human beings that you'd have us become in Christ. We ask, Father, together that I do a great job of unpacking and explaining your word and persuading us how to apply it rightly to our lives. May we each have the will to respond to your word as we grasp it today. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Now, I know that from last week, when I do these doctrine series, they kind of, they hang together, you kind of need to see all three weeks uh, sort of in conversation with one another. Last week, we laboured the point, didn't we, that the Scriptures, the Bible, the Scriptures, they are God's words, His words from heaven to us down here. Um, How else could we humans figure God out on our lonesome down here on earth? How could we reach up into to heaven unless God speaks and tells us, reveals who he is to us. We laboured that it is God's word to us that we have in the scriptures. But complementary to that truth is this, that the scriptures are made up of very, very human words indeed. Please come with me back to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, um, because I'd like us to notice this. Um, uh, Look, perhaps we we forget this sometimes in our very formal, very proper um, approach to reading God's words, and we forget this. Who wrote 1 John? It was John. (laughs) It was John. Uh, Yes, carried along by the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that next week. But these are John's words, and I think, as we'll see, very, very human words indeed, as in we're talking about the John who was a friend of Jesus, the best friend of Jesus, I would argue, a man who loved Jesus, who uh, was close to him, the John who walked and talked and prayed with the earthly Jesus. And he wrote this for us that we have in our hands, very human words that we read here. But I want us to notice, I want us to see John's agenda in just the opening paragraph of his letter uh, to the churches here. John didn't want this heavenly encounter that he'd had with Jesus. He didn't want that encounter to stop with him. No, he wanted us, he wanted his readers to come to experience. Jesus is for you and not just um, for me. 1 John chapter 1, have a listen here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life 
which was with the Father and has appeared to us, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. You see that? Let me put it like this. I know it's, it's an obvious question, having just read it, like, uh, read it like that. Let me ask it anyway. In John's estimate, which ordinary, thoroughly normal human behaviour guarantees that real men and women of our generation experience fellowship with God? The kind of fellowship that John, this close personal friend of Jesus, enjoyed for himself. What normal human behaviour makes sure that you and I get an experience of God on par with that man who knew and walked with and shared dinner with the earthly Lord Jesus Christ? Did you spot it there? It's speaking words. It's by words that we share this fellowship and encounter. Isn't, isn't that what is describing there? Not just any words, that's true. Uh, uh, verse 1, that which we have heard we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and so we testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I just want us to notice the parenting books don't talk about the power of words in those terms, do they? The quotable quotes on your wall or on the internet or whatever do not talk about the power of words to grant us fellowship with the God of heaven along with all believers throughout history. Do you see? Words don't just have what it takes, friends, to patch it up with your bestie when you've had a bit of a tiff. Uh, Words don't just have what it takes to repair things with mum after that blow-up last weekend at her place when things kind of went south. No, much more than, I mean, they do have the power to do that, but much more than that. Words spoken, particular words, are the means by which you in this world today encounter the Jesus of history, encounter the God of heaven. Remarkable, isn't it? Words. So say the Scriptures. Now, let's drill into this a little bit deeper. Would you come with me, please, to John chapter 1? Not just one John, not first John, but John, as in the Gospel according to John chapter 1. And come across with me there, uh, written by the same uh, John, as in the same person, uh, but a different, different work entirely. Um, and I have, a, I have a Bible-y kind of question for you. If you've been a Christian for quite some time, I wonder if you've thought about this. I sure haven't and at times it has stumped me and I'm hoping that we'll get to the bottom of it today. It's certainly something that I've struggled to explain on more than one occasion. Here's the question, the bible question that we come to John chapter 1 with. It's this, why do we call Jesus the Word and we call the Bible the Word. Why is that? Why do we call Jesus the Word and the Bible 
the word. And what do we mean by calling both of them the same thing? They're obviously not the same thing. I mean, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? They're not the same thing. Jesus and the Bible, uh, one of them is God, the other one is a book. (laughs) One of them is divine, the other is words, plural, on a page. Um, One deserves our adoration, our praise, our everything, and the other one, well, well, we should love our Bibles, but we don't worship them. Um, so one, I'm saying, is obviously a metaphor <laughs> and the other is, is a written message. Anyway, let, let, have you ever wondered that? Why do we call Jesus the Word and we call the Bible the Word? And, and what do we mean by calling them the same thing? John chapter 1 is the classic passage um, here. Let me, uh, we won't read the whole thing, I'll select out some verses. Let, let's start at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word... Obviously not talking about our Bibles at this point. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that's been made. In Him was life and that life was the light of men, of people. Skip down to verse 9. The true light that gives light to every man, every person, the true light that gives light to every person was coming into the world. Then verse 12, to all who received him, that is this word, this light, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, no, born of God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Last verse for us, down at verse 18. No one has ever seen God but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. So, why does John call Jesus the Word? And what does that say about this Word, about our Bibles? To put it more bluntly, did the first guys, like John, the first guys to encounter this Word... Jesus, are they the only guys who have encountered the real Word and all we've got now is a poor substitute? How does calling Jesus the Word relate to our Bibles being called the Word? I think we can say a few things. I think we can confidently say a few things, actually. The first one is this, um, and this is quite apart from John's Gospel in a sense. The first one is this, yes, of course, we saw this last week, God's Word, in some sense at least, was in the world before Jesus entered the world as man. You see what I mean? God's Word was in the world before Jesus, the human being, entered our world. We can confidently say that. Prior to Christ's earthly life. How did Hebrews put it last week? God spoke in the past through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Remember that? God spoke in the past through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So, at the very least, the Scriptures 
God's words, plural, were in the world well before Jesus entered the world uh, in flesh. But even through the Old Testament, isn't this fair to say, time and again, we have phrases like this, thus says the Lord, hear the word of the Lord. No, it seems that God's word was in the world well before Jesus entered the world. That's exhibit A, that's part one, first thing that we can say. Second thing that we can say is, so why does Jesus get called the word here? Well, isn't it because, friends, as we look at those verses we just read, isn't it because he embodies God's entire, God's whole, God's complete message from heaven to earth? All that God is, Jesus is. Uh, But he is God, you see, not off in heaven, separate from us, unknowable to us. He is the Word in that he is God towards us, with us, come to speak to us. He's God come to meet us, God's message and Word to us. God's Word, in fact, literally embodied in the body of a person like us. Is that a fair summary of those verses there? So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that's verse 1. Verse 18, no one's ever seen God, but God, the one and only who's at the Father's side, has made Him known, and that Word, verse 14, became flesh, made His dwelling amongst us. Or again, from Hebrews last week, here's the radiance of God's glory how did it put it, the exact representation of his being. Okay, so far so good. So, thirdly, let's just put those two points together. God's Old Testament Word had been a work of variety, of diversity, a poem here, a story there, a law here, a judgment there, spread over time, spread throughout history. God spoke, but in many times and in various ways through the prophets. Now, both Hebrews and John chapter 1 are telling us, if you want to know what unites, if you want to know what binds together, if you want to know what harmonises and clarifies, if you want to know the fullness and the logic and the heart and the centre of God's many words, then you need look no further than the Word, the full Word, the complete Word, the truth of God Himself from heaven to earth, namely the Lord Jesus Christ in flesh amongst us. Jesus, to put it another way, doesn't just happen to be the last guy at the end of a long line of spokespersons for God. No, Jesus stands as the place where all those before him were headed towards from their many times and places, do you see? He embodies in himself, in all that he achieved, in all that he did, in all that he taught, in all that he touched. He is the word that God means for our world to hear. No matter which part of the Bible you turn to, no matter which nook or cranny or which doctrine or law or love poem or story you read within Scripture, Christ is the Word that you are meant to find. 
He is the life and the light of men, the true light coming to the world. Okay, let's, that's fairly academic. That's fairly, you know, in theory. Let's have a look at a couple of examples, a couple of examples. If you've got your Bible open, John chapter 1 there, just turn back with me one page, one page to the end of Luke's Gospel. Come with me there, Luke chapter 24. First example here. Um, uh, so we're here, Luke chapter 24, we're on uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. We're on the very first uh, day of his resurrection. We're on the very first Easter Sunday here in Luke 24. Um, and two of his disciples, uh, they, uh, they are on a walk together. They cannot wrap their head around this news of what has just taken place. Um, they know that the tomb is empty these disciples as they walk. They know that the body is gone, but where? Where's it got? What does it mean? What is the meaning of all this? And, and it doesn't make any sense to them. And Jesus, you see, Jesus comes alongside them and confronts them about the things that have taken place. But, but just have a listen to how Jesus himself, the risen Lord Jesus, expected these Christians to make sense of him and how he expected these Christians to make sense of their Bibles, their Old Testaments. Listen to his words here in Luke chapter 24, just from verse 25 to 27, although you could read on in the passage and find a very similar section right at the end. Just from verse 25, let's have a look there. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Oh, we don't understand the resurrection. We don't understand the empty tomb. What's going on here? Jesus, where does Jesus point them? How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see what's going on there? Jesus expected Christians to go back to their Old Testament to make sense of his life and work. Do you see that? But back the other way, he expected their Old Testaments, already in their hands, so to speak, to now finally make sense and come alive to them because the one to whom they had always been pointing had come and done the unthinkable and the unimaginable, what they could never have seen were it not for him having come and done it. Just one more quick example of a completely different kind. So that's Luke 24. Let's go to something completely different. And and this one might, uh, I know, does trouble some of us from time to time. So has this contrast ever troubled you? You look back in your Old Testaments and what do you find there? You find that the God of the Old Testament seems so pedantically concerned with justice. Isn't that the God that you meet in the Old Testament? So pedantically concerned with justice, with right and wrong, with getting your just deserts. That's on the one hand. But the same God and the same Old Testament, and in some cases the same stories, for whatever reason, Goshi seems to sweep a lot under the carpet. Can you think of some examples there? Let's uh, so David, just one example. Wonderful King David, author of half of the Book of Psalms. I'm just using round figures. You understand? David was a murderous adulterer who orchestrated a loyal subject's death so that he got to sleep with that man's wife and cover up the fact, cover up the adultery. 
Or, or Solomon, another example, towering King Solomon, you know, pinnacle wise man of the Old Testament, half, uh, author of half of the book of Proverbs. He wasn't just a womanizer, although that was true, he committed capital crimes, if you read carefully, as in death penalty worthy crimes according to God's own law. I'm talking about his idolatry and this is the king of God's people. And what happens to King David? What happens to King Solomon? They get off. (laughs) No, not entirely without consequence, I know that. But they get off lightly, don't they? They certainly aren't smitten from on high with a lightning bolt from heaven, if you take my meaning. So what gives? In the end, how can we hold together these two strands, ferocious justice, impeccable standard with abundant forgiveness? Without concluding that God doesn't, I don't know, just bend the rules for the ones he likes or something? Is this nepotism? Is this favouritism? What is going on here? Well, Romans 3 shows us how the Word, Jesus, unites, binds together, draws together. He is the puzzle piece that all of the other pieces plug into to show the one picture so completely. Romans chapter 3, um, Jesus is where the heart of God and the justice of God are bound together and make sense and I want to say begin to shine harmoniously and satisfyingly and in a way that is just so relieving if nothing else. Come with me to Romans chapter 3 and verse 25 and see how that puts it together in the, in the, um, in the story of, of Christ. Romans chapter 3 verse 25 which tells us that God presented him, presented Christ, Jesus, that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ or in Jesus. Or over in Romans 5, it puts it in a very, a very similar thought in slightly different terms where it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is there justice? Ferocious, impeccable, without bending. Christ's blood was spilled in love for us. Such was the ferocity of God's zeal for doing what is just and right and fair. But is there love? Is there mercy? Is there forgiveness that is complete? Even for sinners, even for the worst of sinners. Let me just say loud and clear, a Jesus-centric way of reading the Bible is the Bible's way of reading the Bible. It is not a way of reading the Bible, it's the way of reading the Bible. A Jesus-centric, Jesus-centred way of reading the Bible is what enables us, what empowers us, no more, what excites us to see Christ more fully from even the most obscure, the most baffling corners of Scripture and to glean truths about Him from some of the most troubling and upsetting and unsettling events in our Bibles. And it ultimately then enables us to fuel thankfulness and praise from that 
vast and ancient tapestry of experience of God that's recorded for us in all of the scriptures. Read it with Christ as the centre. But I've got to warn us, a Jesus-centric way of reading the Bible, it does push us as well, doesn't it? Um, It means that we can't make scripture whatever we want it to mean. (laughs) No, because there is an ordering centre to the whole thing by which I begin to understand what it can and must mean. It means that we can't only pick the bits of God's word that we want to enjoy or that we like to hear or that we in our culture find easy for us in our time. It means we can't ditch Paul but love the Gospels. Uh, It means we can't love the Psalms, well, some of the Psalms, but leave off Joshua and some of those less palatable Psalms. Our God is deep and He's complex and He's vast and He will challenge us, but He is God. Should it be any other way? Um, Last thought here uh, in terms of the challenge of reading the Bible in a Jesus-centric way, and I raise this to encourage us, okay, not to crush us, but to encourage us to together labour at this, strive at this, do better at this. And, and I say this, it's a Jesus-centric way of reading the Bible means we can't let our kids just learn Bible stories as if Christ were not the centre and the heart of those Bible stories, We can't just teach them the Bible stories disconnected from Christ and leave it at that. No, the question is, say, how does Noah and the ark illuminate the rescue that we have in Christ from the waters of God's judgment, say? Or how does the exodus from Egypt deepen our gratitude for our escape from God's judgment through the blood of the Lamb and from the death of the firstborn. A Bible story that is stuck behind Jesus, without Jesus, taught without reference to the Word, that hasn't enriched our love for His Word, for the Word, is, dare I say it, one that we have yet to grasp the full meaning of, that we have yet to mine the great riches of, that we have yet to find the full measure of comfort and joy that is waiting for us in there as we labour at figuring out how it relates to Christ and informs our view of Him and all the rest. It is hard work teaching kids, isn't it? Let's move towards a conclusion. I'd like to conclude by saying that the Word, when properly understood and embraced, isn't just a formula for getting us to heaven In Christ, we have a word rather that heals our hurts, that warms our hearts, that deepens our connection, yes, with God, our fellowship with God, but even with one another as we thrive in this word. Can we please finish with reading a little bit from Colossians 3, just a bit from Colossians 3. Uh, I've got one thing to say about it and then we'll pray. Colossians chapter 3, if you're following along, uh, these marvellous words, I know that they'll be familiar to you. Colossians chapter 3, where we read this. Let the, what does it say? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom 
And as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see, the word doesn't just reorder our thoughts a little bit. The word doesn't just reorder our destiny from hell to heaven as rich and beautiful and wonderful as that is. It changes hearts and minds and lives and lifts the character of a community of God's people together. Even here and now, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, Peter Adam, we'll finish with this, the retired Australian Anglican minister, he puts it like this. He says, how does the word of Christ dwell richly in us? Not by ever longer sermons from the minister, but when all the members of the church, when all the members of the church teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. He says, individual spirituality flourishes best when corporate spirituality is in good condition. And this happens when the word of Christ dwells richly among us. Can we pray together? Our Father in heaven, thank you for the light of your world, the light of the world and the light of your word to us. Thank you that in this dark and troubled and sometimes baffling world, we see Jesus. We see a man from outside. We hear a word from heaven. And thank you that he is good news for us. He's good news for our church. He's good news for us together. And he's good news for our world. Father, we confess openly before you that we don't yet know him as we ought. We don't yet know him as we'd like to. We don't yet know him as we trust we one day will when he is revealed from heaven fully and finally and our faith shall be sight on that great day. So, Father, may we devote ourselves to your scriptures that the word of Christ may indeed dwell in us richly, that our spiritual lives together might blossom and flourish in harmony with you and one another, May we be content to be servants of one another in that pursuit, ever seeking to have your word flow out from us in word and deed, yes, to one another, but even to the world around us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.